Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have Carrie Baldwin on with us again. Carrie has been a frequent guest on this show. She is an independent researcher and writer who focuses on libertarian philosophy and reform theology aimed at the educated layperson. She's very good at challenging others to rethink prevailing paradigms, which makes her a great libertarian. She's digital marketing coordinator at the Libertarian Christian Institute and co-authors with yours truly and two other dudes of Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. Hey, Carrie, thanks for joining me again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Doug. So you're very keen on teaching people how to think well, and it's really important that we learn to think well, especially when there are sort of high stakes situations involved. I don't know, maybe Mm -hmm. a pandemic on a global scale, or maybe something like abortion on an individual scale. So we want to talk about the idea of thinking well, especially when stakes are high. But we should probably start off in a conversation about human action and individualism, whether or not you can say groups or corporate entities in some fashion can think and act. Mm -hmm. And so let me get your take on that. Like, is it only an individual who could act or can we meaningfully say things like this group chose or something in that direction? Yeah. So this is something that Ludwig von Mises brings up about praxeology, right? Which is the study of human action. His point is to say that, well, first of all, human action is purposeful, It's not just a reflexive behavior. So, you know, instinct isn't really part of that. And in order for something to be purposeful, you have to think about it first. Now, what's interesting is, so two implications of that. The first is, in order for you to think about something, you have to have a mind to think about it. And the reason why we say that only individuals act is because only individuals have a mind. Groups don't have a collective mind. Like There's no such thing as a hive mind? Yes. The closest analogy that we can get to it is the alien species in Star Trek called the Borg, right? And even that isn't even a perfect analogy because the Borg exist by assimilating individuals into their collective. Mm. So we actually have a hard time conceiving of what a collective mind would be like. And I think that that's evidence enough that we only have individual minds. So individuals only act when we are part of a group. We might be acting together in cooperation. So, you know, even the word co-operation, that's working together, that's working on something together. So as groups, we can co-operate together. We can take actions together, but those individual actions are made through the individual. It's not like suddenly Mm -hmm. we become part of a collective mind. The input mechanism is through individuals in a group rather than this thing that are external to the individuals. Right. And even in a group, right, you might have the smallest group is the group of two, right? So you might have two people who agree to do something, but they have completely different motivations or reasons for doing it. 
So that's also evidence that that's individual action taking place as a result of individual minds thinking and reasoning through you know, what it is that they're doing. So they might be in agreement, they might be cooperating together, but that's not a group acting, that's two individuals acting. Yeah. What do we mean when we say something like somebody did something without thinking? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like Mm -hmm. what comes to mind is the reaction that we might have to something instinctually to pull a baby away from getting, you know, hit by a bicycle on the road or, or something like that, like, or a toddler, I should say, not a baby, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of stepping out. We just like instinctually grab them, right? Yeah. And we pull them off. Or sometimes we criticize somebody for like doing something foolish and we say that they were just acting without thinking. You know, you and I both have teenagers, so we understand mm-hmm. fully what that means. Yeah. So what's happening in those situations with respect to purposeful action? Yeah, so... One of the distinctions that I like to make is that, first of all, we're all thinkers. Humans are all thinkers. We develop over time the skill of thinking, the ability to think. This is through childhood. So children start out behaving by way of instinct, like a child or an infant cries instinctively because they're hungry, not because they've reasoned through, oh, my stomach hurts and I should probably put something in it. And hey, mom, come feed me, right? Like there isn't any of that. The baby cries from instinct. So the cry itself may have a purpose, but we wouldn't call it purposeful action because it's not the baby thinking about that. So they're doing it instinctually. Over time, though, as the brain develops and as we gain experience in life, we have to learn how to reason through things. But you can still, like, you can go through your entire childhood and not ever really learn how to reflect on your thoughts, which is what we mean by critical thinking or thinking well is the ability to think about your own thinking. So you're thinking, but you might be unreflective in your thinking right? You're not thinking about, oh, is this a good idea or a bad idea? You're just doing it. And as long as you still have a goal and a motivation, you know, and a means to achieve that goal, it's still considered purposeful action as far as, you know, Mises's definition is concerned, right? So one example I give is you might be in, a, in the grocery store, right? And you're at the checkout line and you've got a basket full of groceries and you glance over at the candy bars that are over there and you just decide you're going to pick one up and add that to your your shopping cart. That's still purposeful action, even though you didn't think, you know, go through the process of thinking, well, why do I want the Snickers bar? You know, is that a healthy option for me or whatever? It's just sort of, you know, you have a goal, get the Snickers bar, you have a means to achieve it, your hand grabbing it and and that's it. So And the funds to pay for it. And the funds to pay for it, right. So, you know, human action, purposeful action doesn't have to be overly complicated to understand that we're still thinking about it. But when we say that somebody is acting without thinking, what we're really saying is that they're not reflecting on it. They're not Mm. saying, do I really need the Snickers bar? I mean, you might. And in that case, you're being reflective. But if you just go to grab for it, you're not necessarily thinking about why you're yeah. you're doing it or whether it's a good idea, but it's still considered purposeful action. 
So let's talk about high stakes situations. And I can't, it's funny, I can't say that without thinking of like movies where there's like gambling or like a heist involved, which is really <laughs> ridiculous. So, you know, in everyday life, there are things that we do that are high stakes. It may not be every day, but there are, you know, depending on your risk tolerance, some things are less high stake than others. What are some examples of things that we, you know, from individual to like global, which I kind of alluded to at the beginning, like that are high stakes? Like what do we mean when we say something is a high stake situation? Yeah, so with every action we take, we have a choice, right? We have a choice to do something and implicit in that is choosing not to do another thing. So some of these choices are low stakes. You know, maybe you're a healthy person. So grabbing that Snickers bar at the checkout counter isn't going to put your health at risk immediately. But maybe you're a diabetic and grabbing that Snickers bar could mean, you know, jacking up your your blood sugar in such a way that it could land you in the hospital. So high stakes are going to be those decisions that have a higher risk involved. The Snickers bar is a great example on an individual level. It might be high stakes for one person and not high stakes for another. Another example that you had mentioned is at the beginning was abortion or really the choices that a woman might be faced with with an unplanned pregnancy. It's not simply, you know, abort or adopt. It might be, you know, even if you decide not to abort, there's lots of decisions that might go into that, including do you marry the father? Do you stay away from the father? You know, maybe maybe the father is abusive. Maybe you need to escape a situation. Like the choices that are faced in that sort of situation are never so straightforward that you can say, just don't have an abortion and your problems are right. solved, right? So that's what we mean by, by high stakes. There are decisions that involve risk. And because they involve risk, you have to really reflect on them and think through them. And the fact that you have high risk involved doesn't eliminate any of the trade-offs, right? There are opportunity costs to making one decision over another. Even in that example with abortion, maybe you choose to keep the baby instead of adopting. And there are trade-offs to that. You will end up having to pay for childcare at some point so that you can have a job. Whereas if you had chosen to adopt the baby out, you wouldn't have to pay for childcare, right? But you might be trading off the opportunity to enjoy motherhood, even as a single mom. So, you know, on a societal level, obviously one, well, I can give two examples. I think both, obviously the pandemic, this idea of public health can involve high stakes if the pathogen going around is something that's life-threatening or can be life-threatening. And just like on the individual level, those stakes may vary from person to person, right? You might have somebody who's more or less vulnerable to a particular pathogen. That exists on a societal level as well. Another example might be the issue of racism. That can be a high stakes thing if you're on the receiving end of racism. So at any rate, the higher the stakes, probably you might say that the highest stake is something that's life-threatening or threatening to livelihood, right? And in those cases, we still have to make a decision. We still have trade-offs. We still have choices to make. Well, it, it seems like 
you know, it's kind of an obvious observation here in this conversation that if you find yourself in a situation involving a high stakes decision, such as an unwanted pregnancy or an unwanted debt or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. that the ability to think clearly and critically and reflective in a way that is useful to making a better, wise, good decision, however you want to call that, it's sort of obvious that you have to have those skills ahead of time. I have personally been working at, over the last few years, at becoming a better decision maker when emotion can become involved in the decision. Mm-hmm. I'm an, you and I were talking about this off air at one point, I'm an Enneagram four. And so most of my decisions need to have some sort of like deep meaning to them. And so I am attached to certain decisions in a certain way that somebody maybe like you or somebody else listening might be like, yeah, what, what does that mean? Like you have that, you chose that because of that meaning mm-hmm. may not make any sense. And so there's emotion involved and we all get involved emotionally in some regard with respect to like our decisions. And so when the emotions are high, it's even more difficult to make critical decisions and wise choices because we haven't developed the necessary skills to make those. And and I, I think that's sort of what you're doing with your courses on Mere Liberty is that you want students and adults to develop the skills to sort of thwart off decisions that are made either hastily or unreflectively or in whatever foolish fashion. Yeah. So, you know, a high stakes decision creates an imperative to act or make a choice. And, you know, maybe that choice is to not act, right, in in some fashion or to not choose a particular thing, right? Maybe your decision at that moment is to wait. But high stakes creates the sense of urgency. And that sense of urgency is where the emotion comes in, right? If we haven't prepared for making decisions in high stakes situations, we have a tendency to seek out from others what the good decisions should be. And we do that. Or we have our own, uh, something called heuristics, which are shortcuts in thinking. And these are just things that Mm -hmm. we sort of develop unconsciously over time based on our, our own personal experience. But yeah, this, this issue came up for me actually in one of my courses or in one of my sessions on my my adult seminar because what we were talking about was manipulation and how people can use manipulation even to achieve something that might be perceived as good. They use manipulation as means to an end because it's it's more expedient than getting somebody to stop and think through things. And so you know, if you have a society that's sort of been educated to believe that only the experts can make these big decisions and you should leave that to the experts, then what you learn is to not be reflective, especially when it comes to high stakes situations. I think that this is a wrong way to do things, especially because as we said at the beginning of the episode, it's individuals who act. So let's say you have no knowledge in medicine whatsoever. You might go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you've got cancer, it's incurable, you're going to die in six months. Well, you're not the expert, but maybe you don't like that answer. And so you go get a second opinion and you know they give you another response. Well, we can try this particular remedy and maybe 
Maybe your life lasts five years. Now you have a choice, right? You have a choose to act or not act. You might even go get a third opinion. But the point is, is that even if you're getting input from experts, from people who know what they're talking about, at the end of the day, you're the one who's still making the decision. And at the end of the day, especially if we're talking about a high stakes situation, it's your life and you're the one who's taking the risk. Mm -hmm. And if you were never taught how to make a decision in that case, it's very difficult to do. And that can make the sense of urgency, those emotions run even higher because now you're introducing anxiety into the equation. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I do these courses is so that people can start learning these skills because if you don't learn how to think through a situation, by the time you reach that situation, and you will, you will always have high stakes situations to think through or to rather make choices in. If you haven't learned how to think through them already, it's too little too late by the time it gets to you. Mm -hmm. And so we actually help ourselves by learning these skills in low stakes situations and start practicing them over time. And even in doing that, we're actually creating new heuristics, new shortcuts in thinking that we then can use in those high stakes situations. Not only do we have better informed heuristics, but we also have the skills necessary to navigate those high stakes situations. Hi, this is Dr. Norman Horn. And if you like the Libertarian Christian podcast, then you'll definitely like our other podcast, Good News, Bad News, a roundtable where you can join me, Matt, Carrie, Doug, Aaron, and others as we analyze the news from a Libertarian Christian perspective. Check us out on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or on libertarianchristians.com slash roundtable. I want to talk a little bit about this whole idea of experts because it's very easy to write off experts in 2022 because there have been a lot of experts who have been wrong. Mm -hmm. There have been a lot of experts in one field who have made proclamations in a different field that happen to be right mm -hmm. and vice versa. And we'll never get away from the allure and even the existence of an expert. I mean, I could be cynical with you here and say, well, Carrie, you're being the expert on on decision-making and you're asking mm -hmm. people to trust you. Yeah. How do we make sure that we're asking the right expert on decision-making to make the right decision about the expert that we listen to on decision-making? Like, we could go down that road ad infinitum, but... It seems, though, in your example of the person who has cancer and doesn't like that answer and goes to another expert, mm -hmm. okay, they now are creating for themselves a situation where one expert or a, a sort of minimal number of experts are dictating to them, here's your choices, right? So, like, it's almost like in that answer, you give a way in which people can actually pursue an alternative opinion that may or may not be an opinion. I mean, it is an opinion in one sense, but it, I mean, it's a doctor giving you information mm -hmm. based on that doctor's best knowledge or best understanding. We're not trying to say that that first doctor was wrong saying that they have only six months to live or that they didn't, you know, or whatever. There was nothing negative in, in your story about that. It was just the, here's the facts, right? Right. So how do we navigate a world where experts are constantly not telling us what to do, per se. I mean, that exists, but like they're constantly providing input into our lives. And like, there is a sense in which I don't have any other options. I don't mm -hmm. know personally, especially early on when the vaccine started coming out, 
there were many people saying, whoa, 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 whoa here. Mm-hmm. This is not something you, you know you should take lightly. You shouldn't just listen to the government, which is always the case. You should never always just listen. To the, <laughs> you should never just listen to the government because they say so, right? Right. But they were saying here's some reasons why these vaccines or some of the vaccines have these adverse effects that are worth waiting for or worth investigating or whatever. And they were some of those people were like shut up mm-hmm. by you know corporate press and so forth. But like when I come across that information and it gets into an area where we talk about spike proteins and all these words that I'm not personally familiar with. Right. And I don't understand some of those things. And like, it's in some ways beyond my capacity to sort of process and make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. Then it gets really, really complicated for somebody to be like, well, how do I decide? And so I have to rely on people I trust who are not experts in vaccine, right? So more specifically, Norman, Dr. Norman (laughs) Horn, right? He's not an expert in vaccine, but he's a scientist. Mm-hmm. He's in a field where he understands what he's reading. And so when I ask, have questions, I ask him. And he kind of helps me understand like, oh, well, that's what this means. And this is why that particular you know, objection to this particular technology is not as valid, but this one is. And, and like he, he's not one-sided on all of this. Right. And so how do we live in a world where experts are needed? Because, I mean, this is the Adam Smith what, 250 years of uh, uh, specializing the way Adam Smith predicted and Mm -hmm. said would make us prosperous. And so I'm an expert in something that you're not. You're an expert in things that I'm not. We all have to rely on each other in some way. So that's a really, really, really long lead up to a question. Um, (laughs) But I'm sure you have plenty to say. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so one thing that's important to bear in mind is that expert doesn't mean infallible. You know, experts are people who have taken the time to at least attempt to master a particular thing, right? So a person who goes to medical school is trying to master medicine. Now, whether or not they actually master the practice of medicine is another question. One, it depends on their ability to master. And two, it depends on the quality of the education, right? They could be learning something that is entirely false. They might be a master in something that's untrue. So expert doesn't necessarily mean infallible. So we have to remember that every human being, despite their expertise, can still make mistakes, can still be wrong, right? This is why we might go seek out a second opinion because, you know, maybe that first doctor isn't seeing something for whatever reason, and it doesn't have to be malicious, but they're not seeing something that another doctor might see, that another set of eyes with a different perspective might see. The second thing is, is what you described, especially with, you know, your example with Dr. Norman Horn, is our ability to find trustworthy people and create our heuristic, our shortcut in thinking. So you don't feel like you have the knowledge and expertise to sort of navigate the science behind the vaccines, but you've built a relationship with Norm in such a way that you trust his perspective on it. Now, maybe at some point, Norm says something to you that doesn't ring true for whatever reason. It might be intuition is all and you don't have a reason why. You're still free to go get a second opinion, right? To go get Mm -hmm. somebody else's perspective and viewpoint. And so there is certainly value to be had. And I think it's obvious that there is value to be had in those people who seek to master a field and become an expert in their field. That just doesn't mean that they're 
infallible in their field. Yeah, it's almost like we need to develop at bare minimum a BS detector. Yeah, well, actually, one of the things that I would say, especially in our culture, we've learned to sort of suppress our intuition, our gut instinct. And I blame the public schools for that. You know, your intuition is there for a reason. It's there to say, hey, there's something wrong. You need to take a step back. And maybe you don't have all the information and you don't know why it's wrong, but that's okay. Your intuition is there for a reason. And your intuition can be better informed, right? If Mm -hmm. you've learned these skills, you've learned how to be reflective of your own thinking, you've learned how to explore ideas that maybe you initially didn't think were good ideas or right ideas. But practicing the skills of critical thinking, as I said before, in lower stakes situations, help inform your intuition. They give you better informed heuristics. They help you find more trustworthy experts. And they remind you that at the end of the day, you're the one who's making the decision. You're the one who has to take on the risks. And none of that means, even if you think well, none of that guarantees that you're going to make the right decision. So in that, we're also accepting our own fallibility. So let's get back to a basic premise here, and that is we can't take action without thinking first. You know, I think you mentioned that earlier on, and I think we can probably dive into that just a little bit more here because it's really important. Obviously, we can take action. We have to think, we take action, but then there's the reflectiveness. There's the element of high stakes trade-offs. What are some things that we need to take away from this conversation when it comes to, you know, this principle of action comes after thinking? So from the, this principle of human action, right, that we make decisions, they're purposeful, and that in order for that to hold true, we have to think. The thing that we take away from that is that we need to be reflective about our thinking. We need to learn how to think better. And that will facilitate making better decisions. As I said, it doesn't guarantee you make the right decision, but it's going to inform the actions that that we take, right? And it's also going to prepare us for when high-stakes situations occur. One thing that I've told parents, especially parents who are worried about, you know, homeschooling their kids and whether or not their kids are going to learn the right things, one thing that I tell them is, you're not trying to pour all the possible information into their head that they're going to need. What you're trying to teach them is how to navigate these things as they come to them because we're not going to be around our kids all the time as they're adults telling them how to make decisions. We have to teach them how to make decisions. And part of that whole process is learning to think through them and learning how to think well about them. So, you know, the takeaway from all of this, I would say, goes back to education, asking questions about what education really is, the role thinking plays in that. It's just something that I don't think our culture is really reflective on. And again, I blame the public school system for this, but Mm. yeah. So what else can we take away from all of this? I mean, this I felt like this has been a really fruitful conversation because we we all acknowledge the importance of critical thinking and thinking first and you know reflective and all that. But 
I think diving into sort of the the detailed reasons has been helpful for me, and I'm sure it will be for our listeners. But how do we summarize all this and and sort of I don't know I want to say put a bow on it, but that's such a cliche that I hate. But, <laughs> so cliche. But I just said it anyway. Yeah, I'd say it's really easy to believe that high stakes situations create an imperative to act first. And certainly there's an imperative to act quickly, but that doesn't mean act without thinking, right? So we cannot take purposeful action or well-reasoned action without thinking first. And when we recognize that we're always thinking, but we're not always reflective about our thinking, I think that's particularly helpful. When we're talking about thinking first, we're talking about being reflective about our decisions. And it's counterintuitive, I think, to most of us. We have this sort of shoot first, ask questions later sort of mentality. That might seem to work, appear to work with like a home invader. But how much thinking actually went into, you know, knowing how to use a firearm in the first place, right? There's a lot of thinking that goes into that. There's a lot of learning that goes into that. And so we don't tend to imagine that learning as as thinking, but that's exactly what it is. So especially when we're dealing with complex problems that affect us in various ways, high stakes trade-offs create this imperative to think, right? We should really consider it in that way, not simply act first, not just this sense of urgency to do something, but those high stakes make the imperative about thinking well, rather than simply doing something for the sake of doing something. So tell us more about your courses, because I think if people want to learn more, they're not going to keep listening to this podcast because you're not going to be a guest, you know, every other week. Um, (laughs) So they're going to, they need to go get your content on your website and uh, you have some great things to offer. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so my course is called the Liberty Seminar. It's available for middle schoolers, high schoolers, and adults. It's 15 weeks, so basically a semester, and it's available every fall, spring, and summer. Right now, registration is not open, but I am taking names on a waiting list so that you can be notified when the summer registration does open. But real briefly, this is 15 weeks of learning how to use you know, what you might call critical thinking skills. It's building and developing first the self-awareness for, you know, what we do know versus what we don't know and getting comfortable with the fact that there's much that we do not know. And then it's learning how to ask questions in such a way that we can come to discover and learn new things. And it also involves thinking through different viewpoints and perspectives, people who disagree with us, We do this all by dialoguing about, I use the Socratic method, which is a form of inquiry-based learning. We do this all by dialoguing about the principles of a free society. So there's a dual benefit here. You're not only learning about these very basic principles of living in a free society, but you're also learning how to think these critical thinking skills and how to be more a more reflective thinker. So you can find all of that by going to my website, mereliberty.com. And I've got a menu item for courses. You can just click on the Liberty Seminar and see the details there. And if you're interested, you can sign up on the wait list and you'll be notified when registration opens. Everybody on the wait list gets a discount, by the way. So yeah, mereliberty.com. 
And if you're like a Snickers loving impulse buyer and you want to listen to Carrie, she has a podcast and articles on her website. So yes, you know, that too. <laughs> if you don't want to wait that long, you can do that. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Carrie, for joining us for this uh, episode. Thank you. It was fun being here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.